Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. In my life, until this job, the basketball court was my sanctuary. It was the place I would go really to feel who I am, really to feel separate from the world, but completely actualized and all that stuff. I said, now this is the second place, and that place is the classroom. Welcome to 94 and More, a podcast presented by Bristol Studio. I'm your host, Jake Fenster, and today I'm joined by Dave Hollander. Dave, thanks for joining us. Jake, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So for those who don't know you, can you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit? Um, I guess my official title is, uh, I have a lot of different titles, but um, I'm a professor at NYU. I teach sports management. I'm also uh, assistant dean. I'm a dean of uh, my own program called Real World, where students do real world things with real world <laughs> for, you know. For everybody listening, uh, professor, well, I call you professor, but uh, Dave is actually my first professor at NYU. That's how I consider you. Um, you taught me intro to sports management. So like my first class in the sports management program at NYU kind of helped shape the way that I viewed you know, the sports world and, and what it means to to pursue a career or any opportunities in the sports world. Um, so I just wanted to kind of set that stage because I think what you're doing at NYU, uh, which we'll get more into, is really rare and it's really, really important. And I feel like what I'm doing today um, is a direct, is directly related to that. So maybe we can speak a little bit more about the real world program and, and what that is exactly. Uh, well, Real World is a, a program where I invite companies, organizations uh, across different industry verticals. Uh, could be every, every anybody from Nike to Porsche to JetBlue, um, Samsung, and I mash together students from different degree programs who, on the first hour or the first day of class, uh, get a brief from that organization, they'd say uh, who they are, how they've arrived at this moment, and that here's an actual problem we're lucky to solve. And then we divide the class up into four teams of four for the rest of the semester they compete. Uh, this is the shortened version of the description. Uh, and then they pitch the organization, their solutions. And if solutions are right and viable, the external partner and I pre-agree, they will implement those wow. solutions in the real world. And We've done that uh, a lot of times now. Um, we've been doing this for, for years and I'm really proud of it. But like you said, I'm that just came from me teaching you in the sports program in NYU, in New York City, and saying to myself, these guys need to go in the water and swim as fast as possible. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important point. And that's one of the things, you know, I've only been out of college for three years now, graduated in 2018. So for me, um, just by, you know, when we first talked, when I first got offered the opportunity to work with, with Luke and at Bristol, um, I remember you were like, this is perfect for you. And I was like, oh, aren't you going to tell me to go with like a bigger company or, or go find kind of something that's more, I guess, stable to, you know, the, the average college graduate, somebody who's leaving and, and has student debts and all these things. And you were just like, no, it's perfect. Go, go explore it. 
and reflecting back on the last three years, there is, I've learned so much by just being in the real world, um, by interacting with, you know, working with companies like Adidas, New Era, Stance, Uninterrupted, and just learning how to even navigate kind of business conversations or business decisions that you just cannot replicate in a traditional classroom setting or through a four-year program or um, even at like a traditional job, right? It, there's something about being in the real world and facing real world problems that forces you to actually like grow. There's real world implications and there's a lot to that, yeah. um, which I think is is really important. Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's no answer key. Um, yeah. Or doesn't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer. That's the whole point. The world is changing. There's new facts and circumstances and you've got to figure it out. And exactly what you said, you know, just the, just the demystification of sitting down and having a meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is how they talk. This is how it looks. Yeah. I think you should have that before you get to your first meeting. Um, yeah. I think there's no reason the, the whole idea of the academy over here and the real world over there, that's a really old, uh, obsolete idea. I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> glad that I played a very small part in the greatness that is now Jake Fenster. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But how, so how did you go about taking that idea of the real world, right? The class of bringing those two together. How did you go about actually making that a real live course? Well, I give credit to Fox Sports. Um, who had a program called Fox Sports University. I read about it in Sports Business Journal. We're going back now, nine years, 10 years, I don't know. And uh, what it was, was kind of what I described. It was, it was all marketing, but they came into a, a class and, and had them work on a problem for them. And I had read about some students at SMU who came up with like a local promotion for Fox Sports Southwest or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like my guys could do this. And I found it on the internet info at Fox Sports University. I emailed them. I said, my guys could do this. And they called me back in five minutes. <laughs> they called me in five minutes. Like, were you surprised yes. it was that quick? Yeah. I, you know, I figured out oh, this is never, you know, no one's going to call me back, uh, write me back even. They were dying. They had been working with big kind of major conference D1 schools and they were dying to do something in New York City. Of course they are. It's New York City. It's, that's yeah. what it is. That's why students come to NYU uh, to have access to those superstar people and institutions. And so I did this with Fox Sports. And that first year, we were finalists for a Synopsis Media Award, what my guys put together. They created a promotion for uh, NYCFC, and they were a finalist for a 30-second spot uh, for um, to promote like local programming, we were up against the NBA, the NFL. From there, we spread. We said this should be for this would be yeah. even better if non-sports students worked on sports stuff and sports students worked on non-sports stuff because it's just they, they, nobody in sports is like I only want people who study sports. No one in hospitality is like I only want people in the you know who've been thinking yeah. about. They want all kinds of brains. And so I, yeah. I just went straight to my dean. I said, this is what we have to do. And, you know, they were like, oh, no way. <laughs> do that. That's not school. Well, now it's, you know, now everybody's doing it. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's an interesting point because I feel like with my generation, um, you know, we grew up right on that cusp of 
when I was younger, everybody was kind of supposed to fit into a category. You know, you were, you were like a jock or you were, we were kind of on the outside of the traditional, uh, traditional way that that was approached where, you know, you really are a jock. You can't do anything else. or you're an artist, you can't do anything else. My, like in high school and transition to college, I was still kind of in that space, but you could feel it was starting to change. And I feel like as we started going through college and that I give you credit uh, for your program and the things that you're doing, you started to show, you know, there's other ways to be involved. You don't need to be just like, if you're in sports, you don't need to just work for a team. You don't need to just do one thing. You can do all these different types of things, you know? Um, and I think that the generation that's like just below me that's coming up now is great proof of that, that they're doing a million things while they're in high school. People are branding themselves in high school. I mean, you look at high school basketball players are almost the, almost the perfect example. I mean, these guys have brands at 13 years old and that's just not something that, and then they're building businesses around it and they're, everybody is building their own brand and whatever that means is unique to them and their story. Um, but I think it's almost like the perfect time where you're building up this program is because this is what, this is a reflection of the zeitgeist, something that you taught me, uh, but something that is actually taking place in the real world. And, and you're like, why not bring it into the classroom? Um, well, that's right. You, you nailed it. You were, you were the first generation to, from the time you were born, you were actually, it was no big deal for you to participate publicly in the world. So yeah, yeah that is public, broad participation. Yeah. Do you know everybody can see you? Generations before you were like, oh, I'm over here in school. Exactly. And the real world is over there. And someday I'll be over there. Exactly. You grew up, it was all one thing. Uh, and you have to you have to meet that now in education or I don't know, you know, you're using a very old, outdated model that just isn't relevant. So when you approached your dean about doing it and they said, no way, you can't do that. How did you respond? How did you go about like working through that roadblock? I um, The version you can share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't take no for an answer very well. And uh, and I pushed and I pushed. And um, uh, I don't mind saying, I, you know, at some point I went over the head of my immediate, my direct report and... I said, hey, I said, I'm doing this thing and I can't believe no one is okay with it. And the guys, and, and the person of greater authority was like, wait, what? You want to do that? You have to do that. I said, yeah, I, I, that's what I feel too. And then that's what happened. And yeah, I advocated for it. And I, I, I poured myself, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. You know, you can do everything. You can be, you can politically outmaneuver internally. You can be really eloquent and advocate. But at the end of the day, the idea has to work. It did work. The students yeah. rose to the occasion as I believed they would. I always believe in students. You know, I never believed the courses about me that I teach. Um, and in this particular model, you flip the classroom. That's another thing. Um, you know, the old model of me in front of the class talking, yeah. class, that's called the sage on the stage. And, and look, I'm, I'm good at that model. I enjoy it. But this classroom, I flip it and I meet individually, group by group, and they drive the learning. They drive the process. I say, hey, what's up? And they're like, here's what we're working on. Here's, and I don't just give them feedback. I bring in other people to give them feedback. And Together, we are digging out of the world the answer, the truth. It, it's, uh, 
And so the power dynamic is, you know, a lot of people are like, Hey, you know, there's a a unequal power in the world and they're right. Uh, The structures are unequal. And so I say, change the structure and this structure puts the student in control. Students who normally wouldn't speak, speak. Students who don't fit into that typical uh, yeah. structure perform. Students who feel, uh, students from marginalized groups, students of color, women, um, uh, international students who are shut down and like, oh, I've seen this like power structure before. Now live. So when, when you do that, right? When you flip the, the structure of the class, what are you looking for from your students, because it's very different than what you're looking for when it's the traditional structure. Um, Are you looking for each student to kind of, you know, come to their own understanding of what their role and responsibility is? Um, Kind of like like something that we deal with at Bristol is you kind of have to set your, create your blueprint and go um, like actually bring it to life. You know, you have to have to execute. So are you looking for your students to kind of see how they handle that, like figuring it out and also executing? Do you have different things that you kind of lay out as a blueprint before the class starts, like in the syllabus, you're like, this is what I want to see from you guys. How do you go about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've trained uh, over 30 instructors on how to teach this now. Um, And I give all all of them great freedom uh, to find their own way. So, you know, I do it one way. Uh, I come at it with kind of like, uh, I, I don't give people defined roles. I let them discover those roles. Um, I do have kind of a process that I think yeah. works, but they can blow it up. I just keep them on task. There's other professors who, for example, there's a marketing professor. We worked with a lot of ad agencies, um, FCB notably. And yeah, in the first two weeks, he's like, all right, you're the... Um, yeah director you're the copywriter you know you're the account person like he he actually resigns in those roles yeah so i think you know the important thing is that they are taking feedback collaborating advancing every time we meet and that they're they're researching and understanding the difference between data whether it's quantitative or qualitative and insight um, I need them to take the data and find the truth. Don't just present data. So there's lots of things going on. You know the process. Yeah. yeah. It's scary, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm bummed that I never got the chance to take one of those courses. I think you had just started it with the Jets and Fox. Right. And I remember, and this is one of my biggest problems with college and looking back on it, this is something that like I openly have talked about with people. I remember my advisor went to my advisor and I said, I really want to take this course. And she said, you can't. And I was like, well, why not? It's, it makes sense. It's perfect. She's like, well, you need to take a, a cultures and context or something like that. I was like, all right, I've done, I've done all of that. I've done that in my life. I've done that in high school. I've done that in college. And you're like, well, it doesn't fit this box. You need to check it off in order to get your degree. And I remember being so upset because I was like, I really, I think we actually had a conversation. I think I tried, yes. to, I reached out to you and you were like, you need to sign up for this class. And I just, she literally told me I couldn't do it. Um, and I think that just goes back to what we're talking about. It, I could tell how important that was to be prepared for the real world because like the, the environment you're describing is one that empowers the student to kind of like struggle in a good way that forces them to figure out like how to, you know, get your head above water, how to swim. 
um, on your own without somebody just, you know, coaching you through it the whole time. And that's, that's what I've kind of been learning is so important because otherwise you're just sitting around waiting for somebody to give you cues and then you're not being proactive. You're being reactive. And, and that's the type of like bad business practice that I think can be very dangerous to a student that has ambition because you come out and you end up losing your ambition or you're sitting, you know, waiting for somebody to just guide you and lead you, but that's not actually how the real world works. Well, that's right, Jake. It's uh, and that's, that's one of the big challenges, you know, right now in higher education, in every level of education, you know, you hear a lot of talk these days about reset, reimagine. Yeah. And the old way of jamming information into people, they spit it back to me. Okay. People do need certain content. They do need certain skills. But after that, if you're training them, as you said, just to wait for someone to tell them what to do, how to get to the answer, for someone to give them what to read, we are not creating the kinds of human beings, not just succeed in business, yeah. but that will enjoy being a human being on this planet in all the things we get to do. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's exactly how I feel. And I, I kind of want to jump to your most recent course, um, something that you've been receiving a lot of attention for, because I think it takes this a step further. Um, your your new course, How Basketball Can Save the World. Uh, what does that mean to you? Can you talk us through that a little bit, what that course is about? You know, just to segue it from what we're talking about is uh, it's, it's basically meeting students where they are and saying, I think this is something intuitively you know about and you like you know is true. Um, so let's explore is there meaning to it? And how basketball can save the world in a nutshell is me taking basketball, what the inventor of the game intended, uh, how the game has operated and the impact and influence it has had and what the world has told us that that operation, that influence and that impact has meant over the last 130 years. Yeah. And saying this is a belief system. This is a ism, like existentialism, like capitalism, like communism and socialism. Like this is basketballism. It is a philosophy that you can apply to figure out the world, make it more just, make it more efficient, make it more productive, um, meet 21st century needs. So I think that's a, it's funny when I, when I read this article, I just thought it's crazy how aligned what your course is about and what Bristol is about. <laughs> because for us, this is what we talk about all the time. You know, we're a clothing brand, our lifestyle brand, but we're a basketball lifestyle brand. And, you know, having a podcast uh, before the, before COVID, before the pandemic, we had basketball runs twice a week to just invite people from different communities to come play and, you know, meet people and connect and sometimes network, sometimes get jobs out of it. Um, all these things, you know, basically we replace the word basketball with opportunity. That's how I see it as something that collides worlds, brings people together, connects people, you know, breaks down walls. It's not about who you are and what you've done. It's just about, you know, you're a human being and we're here in this moment to play a game together. And that's why I think that course is so important. Well, it's true. I mean, just the, the form of the game itself how many spaces in the world offer what you just described? 
Yeah. Where you can just walk into the space with people you've never met before and begin to cohere, cooperate, communicate, even if it's yeah, even if you don't speak the same language, you can communicate on a basketball court. Right, right. I mean, your bodies are close. The space is intimate. You know, a lot is learned from that exercise that makes you better able to navigate in all other kinds of contexts. I, um, I really believe that and I'm doing a lot of work on that now. <laughs> no, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to hear it. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the things you're actually doing in class to kind of push that further and to drive that home with the students. Yeah. Um, so um, maybe like guests you have on types of yeah. assignments, things like that, that kind of help you spread that message. The first thing is I've, I've, I've kind of constructed 13 principles of basketballism uh, and those principles uh, I try to kind of demonstrate and prove throughout the course. So a fundamental basic principle of cooperation, uh, balance between the individual and collective, balance between force and skill, um, positionlessness, uh, low barrier to access, I, like yeah. principles. And then I will explore big societal topics like gender, race, immigration, future of work. And I will bring, so this semester already, we've had Suburb, um, uh, the Peabody award-winning filmmaker, Dan Clores. Um, I just today had more free who is a Chinese, uh, street basketball playground legend who's been all over the world. Um, and then uh, in the second hour, I had Brendan Tui who runs peace players international who just published a study, um, proving how effective basketball is in, bringing Israelis and Palestinian kids together, kids and Protestant Catholics in Northern Ireland, South Africa, uh, Greek and Turkish Cypriots, and Nick Collison and Sam Anderson go through yeah. kind of um, uh, a boomtown, you know, and Oklahoma City and how a city balances itself, just like Durant and Westbrook and Harden have balanced themselves and how Collison is the only retired Jersey uh, in Oklahoma City like his six points a game yeah yeah average but because of he is the balance man he embodies he, oklahoma city understands him and he understood yeah uh i mean all this so i bring these kinds of head wall frazier i've had um i mean hall of famers and and best-selling authors and academics people like opera singers i mean yeah walks of life People who who really, yeah, from all walks of life, who in their own way are tied to the game, doing something unique with, to the, with the game and kind of just showing, yeah. I think, how much the game is not just on the court, how much it lives and breathes outside of the court, outside of a gymnasium, um, you know, and, and like we said, just really connects people and dots. You, you, you think I had Sue Bird, right? And uh, just, just for example, just like yeah. uh, Sue Bird, who's, um, of course, we talked about all the WNBA stuff and the, uh, yeah. you know, Kelly Loeffler. I mean, wow, right? But that's, saw, and the team was sold. Yeah, the team was, it's like, okay, now that's just pro basketball. That's just like, that's yeah. not basketball. Basketball belongs to everybody. Just like you said, you, you do a twice a week run and stuff like that. Yeah. Super and I were talking about just spacing on the court as a point guard uh, how you understand that, how important that is in basketball. And she was saying how as she got older, you know, 
Her spacing even got better. Things slowed down. She really could navigate bodies and space. And, and then you think about what we're in now, something called social distance. And the who is better to understand how to do mass scale social distancing than a point guard? And who is a point guard? Anthony freaking Fauci was a point guard. The man responsible for orchestra. <laughs> like, it's no surprise to me. Yeah. That as soon as they were like, hey, we got to stay apart from each other. We can't like, you know, be with each other. Yeah. Happen in the world. Do you know what happened in every city around the world? They took down the rims in, in playgrounds. They didn't take down tennis court nets. They didn't take I down- want. I was going to bring this up. That's Keep going. Sorry, I was going to bring this up. But that's because people who play basketball need, human beings who understand basketball need yeah. that medicine of, oh, this is how I'm supposed to relate with other humans on earth. This feels good. This movement feels good. It's the opposite. If, if, if social distance means, hey, we're in a virus, basketball means, hey, we're healthy. Yeah. It's funny. It's, I mean, it's actually, it's awful really, but uh, you know, it's one of those things that we've lost really quickly. Um, I had friends, you know, who would just go to the park and get shots up and they were all coming back with pictures from the the rims being tied up and, you know, all the gyms like, you know, in Los Angeles, there's, you cannot play inside. You cannot play inside. And it's, it's more than, I don't know, it's like 70, 30 that you're going to find a rim that's still tied up. Um, so yeah. it's just been taken from us. And I understand you know, the, the greater well, sense of everything, but you can't you even know, go shoot by yourself. The, the, and it's, it's, we're starved. Well, that's, and we are starved, but the crazy thing is they had to take them down because they knew we wouldn't stop playing if they did. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's not and true that's, of anything else. And that's the thing is it's like drawn us more. So when I see people from our runs, you know, we've been doing more events, I see them in LA and the first thing they say, I can't wait to play basketball again. I like it, but you can feel it. It's like, it's cathartic. It's, it's purging for them. Like the day that they get back on a basketball court and can let that, you know, connect with people and let it all out. It's, it's wild. It really is. They knew people would do it regardless. So they had to take it away. And now it's this thing that like everybody's dreaming of this day when we can all come back together and do it. Uh, there's a, there's a great quote from Mark Cuban um, who says, I play basketball three times a week, not because I want to, it's like, it's because I need to. Yeah, it's really true. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about kind of the greater scheme of basketball and everything that you do at NYU, but I want to hear more about your personal story, your connection to basketball. Like, tell us more about you. Did you grow up playing basketball in middle school, high school? Like, did you make it to college basketball? Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, my, my older brother, I grew up in a small town in northwestern New Jersey, Newton, New Jersey. Uh, my older brother uh, was the school's leading scorer. Uh, in our high school's history before three-point shots and uh, before freshmen could play varsity. So it was really did in three years, no three-pointers and held up for a long time. Pro in Israel. Um, My sister uh, was a thousand points, a thousand assists. I hold one record in my high school. Um, That's most technical fouls in a season. That checks out. I could see that. I could see that. Well, you were passionate about the game early on. (laughs) <laughs> that's one way to look at it so so you played in high school and that was the end of it 
I, I played I played in high school. Um, I suppose maybe I could play D3 somewhere, um, but I saw that that would be an all-consuming yeah. thing for someone of, of, of my level of talent. Yeah. But my level yeah. of love for basketball, I mean, you know, I, I played pickup on any court, anywhere. I saw, even today, if I walk by a court, yeah, whether it's a gym or an outdoor court, I stop. I stop and I watch and I watch and I see myself playing. And, you know, it's kind of the thing that when people, when we meet each other, friends, one of the first things we say is, you still play? Um, because it's like the measure of ourselves. Yeah. You know, I, I coached. I coached in college. I coached the Waltham Boys Club in Waltham, Massachusetts, which used to hold one of the biggest uh, boys club tournaments in the Boston area. Dana Barrows, Patrick Ewing, John Bagley, all these guys played there. I, you know, never stopped kind of being in touch with the game. I, I did all kinds of things professionally out of school. One of the things I did out of nowhere was I, I pitched the New Jersey Nets, weird half-hour basketball show idea for young fans, and they asked yeah. me to do it. Um, what, what was that show? What was the show? It was what called was the Gate, idea? Gate D. Uh, and the, the idea, it was like empty, um, that, that there were these three crazy Nets fans, um, young Nets fans, illegally broadcasting a show underneath somewhere underneath Gate D of the Continental Airlines arena. And so we, we had like music videos, we had animation. I mean, I had in sync. I had, a, I had like an agreement with um, a record label. I forget. We had like all these crazy, like, um, you know, we're shooting on super. Yeah. Eight. We put, we put the players. So like Jason Williams, uh, Michael Cage, um, uh, Kendall Gill, we put them in skits. Uh, and, I mean, it's absurd what we were doing, but it was one of the greatest shows of all time. Where, where, where does it exist now? Somewhere in the dark recesses of. So you know, you know where it is. You just don't want to tell us, so we don't find it. No, no, I, I don't. You know, I've tried to find it. I've tried to find really? it. Really? I guess Fox. It was kind of. It was. It was. It was broadcast on Fox Sports Net New York which I think became SNY. You know, if I check with my friends at SNY, I wonder if, if they have it. May have to find it. May have yeah. to bring it back. Oh, <laughs> I have like, I have old VHS tapes. It's uh, it's really humiliating to watch it now. Uh, but I'm proud of that. And you know, I just, I just kind of, I was helping run a live music venue on the Lower East Side called Arlene's Grocery for years. But I always kept a hand in sports a lot of people I worked with, you know, punk rock types and neo-pornographers really didn't understand why I liked sports so much. Um, but, you know, I did a bunch of sports writing. I was the first person to really write sports on the Huffington Post. Um, I interviewed, I did a lot of Q&A, like funny interviews, irreverent high sports IQ interviews with just hundreds of professional athletes. So how did you get into teaching then? How, how did you end up in this position? Was it something that was even on your radar or what was the, what was the journey that got you here? Yeah, never. I was shocked. Um, I, 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 I never thought about teaching. 
I had a book of those interviews come out with little kind of biographical memoirish stories mixed in. And someone from NYU, a professor called me and said, would you like to speak to a class of NYU students? And I was like, yeah. you sure you want me to? <laughs> but I went in, Jake, that day, I felt very comfortable. I felt like all the things I had done up to that point really led me to, to that classroom. And then they asked me if I wanted to teach which blew me away. And I said, yes. And I, I was an adjunct professor and it just kind of, you know, segued into, yeah. I mean, I, it was, it was exactly right for me. I loved being around young people. I still do. I loved kind of teaching, like really getting people excited and connecting with them. I loved the university and the academy, the ability to kind of really bounce and create things and and be in different sandboxes really smart people um but nothing nothing like i i say this and i i, I won the distinguished teaching award at nyu in 2019 it's the highest award uh, congratulations thank you and i said and i gave you know you give a little speech yeah. um thank the academy thank your mom and i was like you know there in my life until this job the basketball court was my sanctuary. It was the place I would go really to feel who I am, really to feel um, yeah. separate from the world, but completely actualized and all that stuff. I said, now there's a second place and that place is the classroom. I always feel like coming out of a class, not Zoom, but like a class. Real, real life class, yeah. I, love I think you found a way, right? that's the thing I was going to say. And I think that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm doing. That's what, you know, people who really love the game find a way to bring it into everything else that they do. And if you can really successfully do that, um, you find that sanctuary wherever you are because you're always tied to the game. But I want to ask you, I'm really curious about this. When you had your first year as a teacher, how scared were you actually like first day of class, like trying to build out the syllabus, trying to think about how you're going to lead an out, you know, what is it? 55 minutes of class a lecture, all this stuff. Like walk us through what that was really like being a first year teacher at a, at a major university. <laughs> um, I don't want this to sound wrong, but I wasn't nervous at all. I, I wanted it to work and it, it was almost surreal. I couldn't believe that I was doing it, that I was yeah. at a major prestigious university. It was a graduate course. I was teaching in the master's program. That's uh, a hell of a way to start. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And I was teaching consumer behavior and I, mm -hmm. I'd never, I don't have an MBA. I had never, um, you know, taken a, a, a traditional business course, but figured it out. Yeah. I just started talking and like, they would take notes and I was like, Oh, this is fun. I'm going to say something else to see if they write that down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, they would laugh at really bad yeah. jokes. And, yeah. um, and I tried to, you know, I've, wherever I've gone, my joy has been to subvert the form. I kind of relied on that. And I relied on the fact that as long as they really could see that I cared about what happened to them, we could go far. And no matter what we were doing, that, that was my philosophy. Yeah. And I can speak from personal experience 
I could tell you cared. I think we all could tell you cared. And you definitely found a way to keep it fun and light and and just kind of, it stood out. You know, I think most people are, are at these universities, they're tough or they want to take themselves too seriously um, or they're not really going to give you the time of day. Like you're just a student trying to figure your life out. And I think in, in all, the, all the courses that I had with you, um, that was very much like you made an emphasis to to be that person, to create a difference, uh, to have a good time and, and just not take it so seriously. And I think that showed, it showed me personally, you can have fun doing something that is serious. Um, it doesn't always need to be you know, so intense. Well, but I wanted, sorry, go ahead. No, no go ahead. I just, I, I would say that, thank you. First of all, that was very kind. And, you know, I remember you, I remember you <laughs> walked in the door I remember this handsome, cool guy uh, who was looking at me like, what? Like, I don't know. And then you would come to my office and you'd be like, listen, I want to do this. Thinking about this. I was like, wow, this, he's, he's really <laughs> focusing. He, this guy really wants to do something. He wants, he's trying to make something out of it. And yeah. it doesn't surprise me that we're talking right now. It doesn't surprise me that we met when you were in New York last time. Yep. Um, it doesn't surprise me though. We were like, in the same, we were in the same episode of I mean, same uh, edition of Slam Magazine. Yes. Like three, pages, three pages apart. <laughs> I mean, how much of a thrill that is for me, I can't even tell you. <laughs> no, it was, that was really cool for me too. But, um, but I wanted to ask, you know, as we wrap this up, because uh, you've accomplished a lot, you've done so many amazing things. What are some of the goals that you still have for yourself and, and things you want to accomplish going forward? I want to take it one step further. Uh, I want to take the student athlete experience and make it academic. I want to reimagine athletics at the academy. I think there's, uh, I think that's a really big area. And I'm not talking about paying athletes uh, at universities. And by the way, they ought to be, they're being just completely yeah advantage of everybody knows that i'm not talking about you know teaching people about name image and likeness and and that kind of thing i'm talking about valuing sports like the way we value math or history or science or music right you can get a degree in music you can get a degree in art how can you not get a degree in doing this thing uh yeah that takes up so much commercial cultural space. So I, I, I have a uh, media space. I mean, I have a, I have a big, uh, I see that as if I could do that and then plus do a lot of like social impact things with basketball. Yeah. Um, hint, maybe the two of them will be done together. That, that, that's, that's, um, that's what I want um, yeah. to do next. And uh, I'm excited uh, to do it at NYU. Well, I don't doubt that you will accomplish all of that. So I'm just looking forward to, to watching and, and being a part of it. Um, and if you have anything else you want to ask me or get across on this episode, you know, feel free to do so. Yeah. Um, I want to know is what's next for you. Like, um, <laughs> like podcasts yeah. and, and uh, I've got like yeah. a white Adidas hoodie that I wore. Yeah. You, you're doing such interesting things what do you think? I mean, is, is, uh, are we going to come back from this pandemic and then what? 
I mean, we're going to come back from this pandemic. I, I think, uh, I know there's some things that we're focusing on right now, um, you know, outside of being a clothing brand, but this, this space is going to serve uh, as a way to, to kind of build, you know, off of these relationships and, and all of these things that we lost during the pandemic. You know, I can't be playing basketball, but I'm using this place to connect with my people or connect with new people. Um, and I very much, you know, we very much at Bristol have some plans, kind of like what you said, and, and, and really building, you know, one opportunity for people who, like us, we've been afforded so much opportunity from the game of basketball just yes. to be here and have this conversation is because of basketball. Um, just to be able to have a brand with three other people who are we're all connected through basketball. Um, so we're very much look, looking forward to building up our community even more, creating safe spaces for people to interact, um, to learn, to educate others, and really just kind of in the way that you're building your course, like how basketball can save the world is we see a way to bring everybody together in a time that has been so divisive um, through the sport. And that's very much what our focus is uh, coming out of this. Noble intentions. I love it. Trying, trying. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to have you back on in the future. Jake, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it is such a pleasure always to connect with you. Appreciate it. Take, take care and, and stay safe. This podcast is presented by Bristol Studio, sound editing by Rashad Allen, music by James Grissom. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.